0: Worship. What do you think of when you hear that word? Worship. Do you think of singing? Do you think of the Eucharist? Do you think of prayers and sermons and taking up an offering? Worship. Do you think of an obligation that lies heavy upon you so that if you don't worship on a Sunday morning, you feel guilty? Or perhaps it's an obligation that you don't particularly like, so that if you don't worship on a Sunday morning, you feel relieved. (laughs) Worship, is it something that you enjoy? Or is it something that you begrudgingly involve yourself in because you feel like you have to? In his book, Worship Old and New, Robert Weber comments, Worship is not something tangentially to tangential to the Christian story, but a matter that lies at the very heart of the Christian scriptures from beginning to end. Our psalm appointed for today is Psalm 98, and as we look at it this morning, we hear one really big idea, we hear one main theme, God's people worship God for what He has done and for what He will do. And after we look at this one big idea of what God has done and what God will do, and we'll look at that as a cause of our worship, we'll see if we can't arrive at some sort of conclusions about why worship is actually good for us. Our psalm begins, Psalm 98, begins, "O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. And this entire psalm, this single first half of the first verse sets up all the rest of the verses it is a call to worship a call to sing to the Lord a new song on account of that which God has done and so perhaps the first thing that we need to say this morning is that despite our American consumerist culture tendencies to identify worship as something that's for us primarily before anything else worship is not about you. I know it's a deep breath, right, Steve? And worship is not about me. <laughs> Primarily, fundamentally, you cut through all the nonsense. Worship is about God. This entire psalm is about worshiping God for what God has done. And it's not about us, the worshipers, getting the goosebumps. It's about objectively saying, objectively praising, objectively turning to God, looking hard in His direction, and proclaiming Him to be Redeemer, proclaiming Him to be Creator, proclaiming Him to be King. And this entire psalm is ironic to me. The word worship isn't even stated. The concept is everywhere, however, as we see one major part of worship being singing, Mentioned. Singing, a, singing praises, making a joyful noise, a creative expression of worship. I read this week, and I thought it was really funny, Thought I, sh- I thought I would share it with you. Uh, somebody once quipped that trying to worship the Lord without creativity is something like trying to eat toilet paper. <laughs> it just isn't fun, and it doesn't work. You guys didn't think it was nearly as funny as I did. <laughs> You haven't tried to eat toilet paper? I wouldn't suggest it. In verses 1 through 3, we see this again. In verses 1 through 3, the focus isn't on how we worship. The focus is on the why we worship. God's people are called to sing His praises as a response to the marvelous things that He has done. God's people are called to sing His praises because He's worked out salvation for them, because He has delivered them. If you're reading in the King James Version in verse 1, His right hand and His holy arm have won victory for Him. That's why God's people are called to worship Him, because of what He has done. By His right hand and holy arm, by His power, the exercise of His strength and His dominion, He has subdued His enemies. He has won the victory. In his loving kindness to his people Israel, God saved. And so here the psalmist calls the people of Israel to respond with praise. I don't think it's an accident here that Psalm 98 is is sort of dehistoricized. It's not placed within the context of the history of Israel. In that case, then, it is applicable to any stage of the history of Israel. It's not connected directly to a single event. I think that's important for us because we have to recognize that there are countless numbers of instances of God delivering and saving of God victorious for his people. Just to name a few, think of Joseph. Think of how God delivered Joseph. God uh, had victory in and through Joseph. Think about how God then saved Joseph and through Joseph saved his people. Think about the Exodus, how God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt in the Passover experience, this Exodus out. Think about how God repeatedly saves his people of Israel throughout the course of the book of Judges, how God intervenes in Ruth's life, how God watches over David in the kingdom. These are all deliverances that were causes uh, to sing the praises of God. What did Moses do when they walked through the Red Sea on dry land? What did Moses do when he saw the waters crash back upon the armies of the Pharaoh? What did Moses do when he responded to God's marvelous act? He sang a song. The horse and rider were thrown down. What did Deborah do in the book of Judges after Jael drove a tent stake through Sisera's dome and pinned him to the ground and thus delivered them out of the hand of the Philistines? What did Deborah do when she saw God's mighty things? She sang a song. This is what I find to be absolutely astounding. These Old Testament deliverances that were causes of singing were but shadows of the great deliverance to come, the great victory, the great deliverance found in Jesus. In Jesus' crucifixion and death, in his resurrection, which culminates in his ascension and leads to his return, God worked out salvation and deliverance to the full, final, and perfect extent. There's nothing more to be done because Jesus has done it all to win victory, to defeat sin, death, hell, and the devil. Jesus has done it all for salvation by his own right hand and arm of strength. As we read in the letter of Hebrews, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the deliverance of and salvation of uh, Joshua and of Joseph and of Israel and of David and of Ruth, all that pointed forward to the final reality that is Jesus, The deliverance of God, his working out of salvation in the Old Testament points towards the final step in Jesus. And so, folks, I would submit to you that if there's anyone in the world that needs to respond to that which God has done with joyous praise and celebration, it should be us on this side of history, because Jesus has come, and we're waiting for Jesus to return. And so the proper response, then, for that which God has done is praise is thanksgiving, is joyous celebration, and I can't help but wonder why it is that so often we find worship to be an obligation. We find worship to be like coconut. It's got that cat hair-esque thing that's stuck in the back of our throat and we can't get it out. We find worship to be uh, something like sucking on lemons. Why is that? We're responding to that which our Creator has done for us to redeem us. The deliverance of God, His working out of salvation, was never intended for only Israel. We'll remember that when God called Abram, and in the promises that God repeated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis, God's calling of the people of Israel was for the express purpose of blessing all the nations of the earth through them. And so it is, even here in Psalm 98, that God's acts of grace, His deliverance and the salvation that He offers, are not limited to Israel. In verse 2 and 3, the Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. All the ends of the earth are witnesses to his marvelous things, and all humanity upon the earth is called to join in the worship of God because salvation, the salvation that God won, the deliverance and victory extends to those who are not ethnically Israel. God's loving kindness and salvation is for everyone. In the great deliverance of Jesus, people of every nation and ethnicity are called into the family of God. In the Exodus event, in Exodus chapters 12, 13, and 14, if you read carefully, you read that when the people of Israel gathered together and exited out of Egypt, oh, no, a host of, of those not Israel went with them. Did you know that? Yeah. Because God is calling Israel to bless the nations. Jesus in Acts chapter one says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in our reading for today from Acts chapter 10 that Nancy read for us, we heard the result of Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and some Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell, they believed in Jesus, and they were saved because God has revealed his righteousness in the sight of of the nations. At the end of all things, in Revelation chapter 7, for example, there is an innumerable host, an innumerable host of a mixed multitude, nations, languages, and tongues, worshiping the Lamb, worshiping the one who sits upon the throne, is for everyone. And thus, everyone is called to respond with worship. The point has been made in several different places, and by a number of different philosophers or authors, poets, theologians. As human beings, we are natural-born worshipers. We will worship something. The question is this, is the object of our worship truly worthy of our worship? Will anything truly be worthy, especially considering what worship actually means? In the Bible, there's a handful of words that puts some content into what can be an abstract idea, worship. And one of those words literally means to bow down, to bow down before, to prostrate oneself to. Another one of these words uh, that we translate as worship means to serve. Yet again, another means to make confession. And another means to fear or to reverence. And so when we say that we worship something, we mean that we recognize the power, glory, and authority of something outside of ourselves as the object of our awe and wonder, and that we bind ourselves to it, allowing it to identify and define us by bowing down to it and serving it. It becomes our master as we give it thanks and praise. We offer it our reverence. That's what worship is. It's anything in the world truly worthy of worship. And being natural-born worshipers, we humans have a tendency to turn just about anything, even good things, into an object of worship. The human heart, John Calvin once stated, is an idol factory. Of all that which can be worshiped, we must recognize that there is only one who has, can, and will be worthy of our worship Because there is only one who has, can, and will save. There is only one who has worked for salvation, is working for salvation, and will consummate with judgment that salvation. And so we recognize there is only one truly worthy one, truly worthy of service, reverence, fear, and awe. Try in your minds and name another thing that we humans worship who is creator, redeemer, and king. Name something that we humans worship that has acted on our behalf out of grace in a permanent fashion to save. You won't be able to because you can't. Even those other so-called deities worshipped in other so-called religions cannot match that which God has done in Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. They cannot match that which God has done to create, to redeem, and to reign over his world. God's people then are called to worship him, to reverence him, to bow down before him, to bind ourselves to him because of what he has done in the offering of salvation in Jesus. He alone is worthy of praise because of what he has done. Now, there's more to it than that, because you see, our worship of God isn't only past tense oriented. It is also future tense oriented. Our worship is timeless. Let me explain what I mean by this, and to do so, let's pretend that we're standing here together on a timeline. On my left, your right, is the past, and there we have God's saving work in time and in history. There in the past, God created all that is. There in the past, man fell into sin. There in the past, God called Abram. There in the past, God delivered Israel out of Egypt. There in the past, God worked through his kingdom and through the prophets. There in the past, Jesus became incarnate. The eternal Son of God became incarnate through the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born. There, Jesus in the past, crucified, risen, and ascended. That is what we gather to worship, we gather to remember, to rehearse, We gather to praise God for that which he has done, giving thanksgiving, celebrating, bringing the past into the present, saying that which occurred then is uh, relevant now. It changes life now, and we celebrate for what God has done. As we worship God for what he has done, bringing those things into the present, we invite others to receive that same salvation and to join in our worship of God. But we have also on this timeline, to my right, is the future. Those are the things that have not yet occurred in our time. There on the future, we read in Scripture, is the time in which Jesus, who has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the time when His enemies will come as footstool, there He will return in power and great glory. And in the pages of Scripture, we see what is to come. is When Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. And when Jesus returns, uh, sin and death and evil and even Satan himself will be cast into hell for all of eternity. As Jesus establishes his kingdom and will judge, he will rule and reign with perfect justice and righteousness. That's in the future. That's yet to come. We worship now in anticipation of that, looking forward to it. Here and now, in the present, while celebrating the pra- past and bringing it here, we anticipate with eagerness and with joy what is to come. God's people are called to worship God for what He has done in the past and what for what He will do in the future with joyful anticipation. We trust, we recognize, we know that whatever nonsense is occurring in our present, it doesn't have the last word because Jesus does. And we worship Him for that. We trust and we know that whatever is happening within our own bodies, as, as rebellious cells create cancer, as rebellious cells create disease, as we are, have death creeping in upon us, we recognize that those things do not have the final word in life because Jesus does, and we eagerly anticipate the time when He returns. And Revelation tells us at that time there will be a new heavens and there will be a new earth. At that time, every knee will bow. At that time, every tear will be wiped away. At that time, Jesus will reign. And we worship now, waiting for that. So, why is our worship so boring? Don't clap. If we're clapping because of what Jesus is doing, that's great. If we're clapping because I tickled your ears, that's not. So if we're going to clap, let's clap for Jesus, not for me. In eager anticipation of the Lord's return, God's people are called to worship. For when the Lord returns, justice will come. And that is in our psalm. Think about that. That is in the psalm for today. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge, judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. But you think about that. God's creation will respond to him with praise and thanksgiving when he returns to make things new. And, folks, if we think that the rivers aren't going to clap when Jesus returns, our imaginations are far too limited. I don't know that they're going to do the hokey pokey and turn themselves about, but there will be celebration. This is a cause for worship here in the present in anticipation of that which God will do in the future. That time when the kingdom is consummated, that time when the victory that Jesus won in His death and His resurrection will be completed As the great king, the creator and redeemer, the divine warrior, will fully and finally establish his dominion over the earth. And so, God's people worship him for what he has done in the past and what he will do in the future. And that changes us in the present. I would say, as we've already seen, that the worship of the triune God of the Bible makes a difference in our lives because he's the only true God And the only true God who's acted for salvation and whose kingdom will be consummated in the future. And so he is the only true God worthy of worship. And quite frankly, folks, I think that's enough. I think that's enough of a reason to gather on a Sunday morning on the day of the Lord's resurrection and celebrate what he's done and what he will do. But there is a reality that in our worship, God is actually doing something in us. Worship isn't about us. Worship isn't necessarily for us, but worship does change us. God created humanity for himself, and and so it is. The only way to be truly human is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And then, after coming into God's family through Jesus, the only way to be truly human is to learn how to be human through worship. Anglican hero John Stott once commented, Our greatest claim to nobility is our created capacity to know God, to be in personal relationship with Him, to love Him, and to worship Him. Indeed, we are most truly human when we are on our knees before our Creator. And so it is. Without regular worship of God alongside members of God's redeemed people, we are less than that for which we were created to be. God's people worship God for what He has done and for what He will do. And in that place of worship, we become more truly human as God forms us and reforms us into, that, into what He intended and intends us to be. And so worship of God, as we celebrate the past, anticipate the future, the worship of God changes us in the present. Rosario Butterfield puts it like this, Worship is our rehearsal for how to live today and how to glorify God in heaven. It is not merely a Sunday morning exercise meant to make us feel good. Worshiping the one true God for what He has done and what He will do changes us in the present as we are formed into the image of Christ. As we participate with one another in, in singing the praises of God, we look hard in God's direction. Through hearing the word of God read and proclaimed in a sermon, our hearts and our minds are formed in this means of grace. As we offer prayers together and we confess one another, as we go into the throne room of God, He hears us and we receive acknowledgement of forgiveness. We taste the bread and the wine on our tongues and receive grace that gives us comfort and solace, that strengthens and stirs up our faith. In worship, In the presence of brothers and sisters in Jesus, in the presence of the triune God through the Holy Spirit, we rehearse what it means to live in dependence upon our Creator, Redeemer, and King. We rehearse what it means to believe, to trust, to obey. And we prepare for that which is to come as His kingdom is brought to bear as Jesus returns. God's people worship God For what he has done and for what he will do, because only God is worthy of worship. God's people worship God for what he has done and for what he will do, because he is the creator, redeemer, and king. God's people worship God for what he has done and for what he will do, because there is a place where we can be truly human in worship. God's people worship God for what he has done and for what he will do as we rehearse how to live in the present and as we prepare for a glorious future in God's kingdom where we will worship him forever and ever. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we do praise you for the marvelous things that you have done. Come receive the praises of your people as we sing them. Come, and as we continue to worship through song this morning, come and exalt Jesus among us and be glorified, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship this morning.